Could we start the meeting by singing just the first verse of 228? Join all the glorious names of wisdom, love, and power that mortals ever knew, that angels ever bore. All are too mean to speak his worth, too mean to set the Savior forth. Number 228, and just the first verse. Join all the glorious Could we start by turning to Matthew chapter 23, Matthew 23 and verse 18, the Lord Jesus speaking, he says, whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing, but whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Now these are not the Lord's words, he's repeating what the scribes and the Pharisees said. He says then in verse 19, you fools and blind, whether is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. So what is the Lord talking about here? Well, for the scribes and Pharisees, they had gotten quite taken up with apparently the gift that they were offering up of its various forms and forgetting all about the altar and its importance. And there's much to that subject that I don't intend to go into, but I want to use this just as an application of what is on my heart. Because when I considered this verse, I thought, well, I think about the gift. I think of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that is indeed what those sacrifices offered on the altar all spoke of. And I thought, well, what could be greater than that gift? And the Lord says here, Which is greater, the gift or the altar that sets it apart? I puzzled over that for a little, and I thought, well, the altar clearly speaks of Christ as well. It's the basis, the foundation for the gift. It's that on which God ordained that the gift should be offered up on. Not any altar, but it had to be on a proper foundation. And in my application, it has to do with the person and the work of Christ. The work of Christ is so precious and so valuable to us, but not when it's separated from his person. He is the altar. And without the foundation of himself, his blessed person, the gift, doesn't have the value. It requires that foundation. 
And this isn't the only place, of course, where you can find this thought. We were considering not long ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians that when he came among them, he determined to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. There it is again, those two things. Jesus Christ, his person, and him crucified, his work. Both of them vital, foundational doctrines. But what is on my heart today has to do more with the first. In fact, it has to do everything with the first. I want to talk a little bit this afternoon about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to talk about his person in connection with three things, because if you take a subject up like this, obviously it's vast. Another thing about taking it up, our brother mentioned earlier in the open meeting that the Apostle Paul said, I only know in part. And I'm painfully conscious of that when speaking on a subject like this. We're going to speak about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How much do we actually apprehend of his blessed person? And I have to tell you for myself, it's probably a lot less than it ought to be. But by God's grace, I've enjoyed a few things, and I want to share them here today. Three things in particular. First of all, I want to just speak about his divinity. Second of all, I want to speak shortly about the Trinity, and particularly as it relates to God the Son. And the third thing is about his holy nature. These three things, a couple of these have already been mentioned here earlier today. So, if we were to go on and see, you say, well, how important is that? I think no true believer will question it, but the Lord made it very clear when it comes to his work. You go on in John chapter 6, and you find that the Lord said, except you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you've got no life in you. And whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so he's speaking about believing in him, believing in his work, and actually making it part of yourself. And he's saying without that there's no salvation. The same is true, though, when it comes to his person. And for that, we can go to John 8. Let's turn there. John chapter 8. And these are... Many of the verses I'll be reading here this afternoon are well known to many here, but there may be some that haven't considered them yet, and it's to you I'm mainly speaking. And for all of us, we can enjoy the truth of these words. Verse 24, John 8, 24. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. These are the ones who had rejected what the Lord had said in proving all that he was. Middle verse 24, For if you believe not that I am, you shall die in your sins. Father told us earlier we should check the J&D translation. Even in our King James, you can see it's in italics. He does not belong there. The Lord Jesus is speaking about the fact that he is the great I am. And what does that mean? Well, we could go back to Exodus chapter 3 and look at that. For sake of time, I'll just refer to it. The Lord had come to Moses and sent him to the children of Israel to give a message unto them. And they said, well, and Moses said, well, who should I say has sent me? And the Lord said, 
I am that I am. And he said to Moses, Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. That was his name. The eternal, self-existent one. The I am, in short, God. And here in this verse, there's simply no question. The Lord Jesus is saying, unless you believe I am, you could say I am God. You will die in your sins. There is no other way around it. We must believe in who he is, in his person, that he is indeed the not only the Son of God, but God the Son, the true Son of God, come from God himself, God in himself. Just go a little further on in this chapter, we see this proved. In the end of the chapter, verse 58, verse 57, Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now I could stand here and I could say, before my child was, I was. And that would be true, because I was. I existed before any of my children. I could not say before Stephen Stewart was, I was. That would not be true, because he is older than me. But in no case, and with anyone, could I say before, so-and-so was, I am. Because this language applies to one and one only. And that is the eternal, self-existent one. The one who is speaking, saying these words. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have here very plainly presented in the scripture, the Lord Jesus claiming to be all that he ever was. God. Truly God. God the Son come in the flesh. And I just want to stop for a moment and tell a story. Something that happened many years ago. And partly why this is so much in my heart. When I was just in my, uh, maybe the very end of my teens, I was going to school and I was in Newark, New Jersey. And every day I used to walk along there. And I used to pass a whole group of people that would stand in the train station. And they would hold up magazines that said, awake on them. Have you ever seen them? And I would pass a group of maybe ten of them. I think there was quite a number like that every single day there. And it bothered me a lot. I thought, well, you know, I, I know the truth regarding the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation. And I'm a believer, and I walk past them. They're out there claiming to offer something to people. I ought to perhaps talk to them. One day I got up the, ner- the nerve, and I, I did. I went and spoke to them. And about half the group immediately converged on me, and we had quite a fight. I have to say, I don't know that it was profitable. And in all of that, just struggling to make my points and doing what I was thinking to defend the Lord Jesus. But something happened, and it scared me a lot. When I left that place, I was shaken. They had said something 
that really scared me. They spoke about the Lord Jesus and they said, well, he is not God because he's only a creature. And in fact, the word of God says that he's the firstborn of every creature. He was the first one created and everyone followed him. I knew there was a verse something like that. And it scared me a lot. But what scared me more was than that was this. that Here I was, a believer. A believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was actually doubting this question. But how could this be? Am I not even saved at all? Have I missed something? Well, I did what any believer would do. I went back to God and his word. And I got some helps too. And I went up and and looked up every verse I could find on this subject until I was entirely satisfied from the Word of God that those people were wrong, that the Word of God is crystal clear about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is indeed God. I came to the same point that Thomas did where I could say, my Lord and my God. And I'm so glad that Thomas doubted (laughs) It was, I wasn't the first one, a true believer. But it's good to get a hold of these things. It's very important that we go and we learn what the Word of God has to say about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and understand something about that. And it's not just good to have head knowledge or maybe to be assured that we weren't wrong. No, there's something wonderful about this. When you go and you take up the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, And you drink him in and you eat him as that true bread that came down from heaven. Indeed, you and I will find rest for our souls. This is not meant as an intellectual exercise. Let's go and look at the verse that those ones were quoting that day. It's in Colossians 1. Colossians 1. And the end of verse 13 says, His dear son talking about God, the Father. And now it goes on to speak some things about his dear Son, or the Son of his love. Verse 14, In whom we have redemption, through his blood even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Now again, that's not the best translation. It should no doubt be, As Mr. Darby translates it, the firstborn of all creation. The Lord Jesus is called here the firstborn of all creation. It isn't that he was a creature at all. He was the firstborn in this, that is, creation. What does that mean? Well, like any other subject in the Word of God, you typically don't have to go far to find out. But especially when it comes to this subject that we're talking about today, because there is nothing that the Spirit of God guards more jealously in the Scriptures than the person of Christ. And so you will find the teaching regarding him and his person laid out in the plainest terms over and over again in the Scripture from new to old. So we just go on down here. Verse 16 For by him were all things created that are in heaven 
and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. But doesn't that answer the question quite directly and show that actually our King James Bibles don't have the right word when it comes to creature, at least not created creature? No, our Lord Jesus Christ was not created. If he was created, then how could everything be created by him? As it says in John chapter 1 and verse 3, without him was not anything made that was made impossible. It was all created by him. So they were wrong when they said that. He was the first created being. Clearly the scriptures show that he is not a created being. Everything created was done by him. And who could do that? God alone. He had to be before all the other things that were created. And that is what was true of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 17, he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Notice what it says here. It doesn't say he was before all things. We're back to that word I am again, aren't we? He is before all things. Only God could speak this way. It's God of whom it says in Isaiah chapter 57 that he is the high and lofty one who dwells in eternity. For me and you, we dwell in space. And we can walk this way, then we can walk that way, go back again. But when it comes to eternity, we don't dwell in it that way. We live in it, yes, but we're bound by it entirely. God is not. I can't go backwards in time. I can't even go forward in time. I just go along with time as God has ordained it. But God is not so bound. And this was our Lord Jesus Christ, and so he could say, I am. He is before all things. He lives in the ever-existing present. He is that one that we can only dimly apprehend. Well, if we could go back and look about what it says here, the firstborn of every creature, what does that mean? We could go back to Psalm 89, I believe it is, and there God says that he would make David his firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. How could that be? David was lastborn of Jesse's eight sons. Clearly he wasn't firstborn in terms of the first one born. And so we see definitely from Scripture that firstborn is used to mean something else. You can go to Jeremiah 31 and find the same expression about Ephraim. And who was Ephraim? God speaking about bringing the children of Israel back. He wasn't even one of Israel's children. He was a grandson. And not even the first in his family, the second. It has not anything to do in these examples with the first one born, does it? Speaking about something else entirely. So what is it speaking about? Well, let's continue on in Colossians 1. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. Oh, now there's another firstborn. He wasn't the first one raised, but even that isn't the point. The point is what we have in the last clause of this 18th verse. 
that in all things he might have the preeminence. That is what the Spirit of God is speaking about when he's speaking about firstborn of all creation. In everything, the Lord Jesus has the preeminence. He has that place above the others, just like God would give to David, like he will in that coming day to Ephraim. That's the idea, not that the first one, that this one was the first one born, or the Lord Jesus was the first one created, but that he is the one to have that place above all others before God, he himself, God the Son. Now one more that I just want to refer to in First uh, Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy 3, and there's so many of these that um, I would just recommend if somebody wants to go and look. There's more than 100 reasons. I forget the rest of the title by BTP. It's all online. It's free now. There's uh, Brown's book on Jesus is Jehovah. These are wonderful little pamphlets that lay this subject out beautifully. And they lay out enough that you can take many, many, many hours to go through it and enjoy every single minute of them, too. <laughs> but we're going to just have to limit it here for sake of time. And so it says, First Timothy 3, verse 16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. God manifest in the flesh. <clears throat> Don't let anyone try to take that away from you like those ones did that day. This subject is established clearly in the word of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, though it says in 2 Corinthians that he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God, and he ever was this, what we have here. God manifest in the flesh. I'd encourage you something else, too. My brother was reading about Philip and Nathaniel. Get a little further down, you see Nathaniel finally meets the Lord. And he said, well, when did you see me, Rabbi? The Lord said, I saw you when you were under the tree. Nathaniel realized that here was one who was all-knowing. That's speaking about his omniscience. It's a divine attribute of God. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not belong to creatures who are created. <clears throat> he has that attribute. <clears throat> Nathaniel says, Thou art the King of Israel. Thou art the Son of God. He acknowledges he's God the Son. Who else could do that? You go on to John chapter 2, the beginning of the chapter, you find that there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the Lord Jesus then takes water, and he makes it into wine. What is that? Who can do that? Only God? A being all-powerful, the creator? That's his omnipotence. Another divine attribute of God. You go a little further in John, you find the Lord Jesus speaking, and he says, No man came down from heaven, but he who came down <clears throat> out of heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. What is that? 
The Lord Jesus was there talking to them at the same moment he was in heaven. How could that be? Because he's omnipresent, a divine attribute of God. These things belong to God and to God alone. And you will find these things and many other divine attributes tied to him and his person as presented in the Holy Scriptures and to no created being. Anyway, I'd leave that for each one here to go. Uh, If you haven't made that study, go ahead and do it. It's a wonderful study. Going on, uh, just if we could, to look at the second uh, part of what I wanted to speak about is the Trinity. And here we have uh, a whole other subject involving more than the Lord Jesus. But if I could introduce it this way, it was at a conference like this where a brother came up to me and he said, what would you say... God is? Is he one God who shows himself in different ways? Or would you say that he is uh, three distinct persons? I said, well, undoubtedly the, the second. And it's important, isn't it? This is the doctrine of the Trinity. God, as revealed in the scriptures, is one. Yes, that is true. But he has revealed himself in three eternally distinct divine persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we need to understand that this is what the scripture teaches. There are many who call themselves Christians today who deny this doctrine. And so if we could, I just want to look at that. I'll refer to some of it. You find this alluded to right in the beginning of... The Bible, Genesis 1, verse 26, God, Elohim, plural, said, Let us make man in our our image and after our likeness. There's a plurality there. God's saying this. So he's speaking to more than one. Who would that be? Angels? No. No. Couldn't be angels. Angels never created anything. It's the Trinity. And we don't find out the doctrine of the Trinity in that verse. In fact, we've got to go all the way to the New Testament to really get it clearly laid out for us. But it's God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit conferring in themselves as to what they are going to do. And so we have... This truth intimated, at least from the very beginning, from the first chapter of the Bible. And we could go and we can look and see how each one of these divine persons is eternal. If we took the time, we could trace it out with God the Father. But certainly, in terms of God himself, from eternity to eternity, thou art God. That unquestionably speaks of the Father although you couldn't deny it speaks of the Son and the Holy Spirit as well. If we turn to, to Hebrews chapter 9, we would see there that the Lord Jesus, by the eternal Spirit, offered himself without spot unto God. Spirit of God is spoken of as a person who is eternal. But my object is to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I just want to look at A few verses regarding him, and the first one would be in Isaiah chapter 9, 
one that I think we all know very, very well. Isaiah 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Not born, of course. The son was never born. He existed from eternity. How do we know that? Read on. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. Any question about this child that was to be born one day? This son that was to be given? No. It's the Mighty God. What is the next thing? It says in our Bibles, the Everlasting Father. Really should be the Father of Eternity. The Lord Jesus was the Father of Eternity. I don't know if there was anything to be created about eternity. But if there was, he created it. He was the father of it. He is that eternal being of whom we are speaking about. God, the Son. A person that existed for all eternity in this trinity, this triune being that is revealed in the scriptures as God, the one God. Another beautiful verse, we turn to this, Micah, Micah chapter 5, and verse 2 says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting, or from the days of eternity. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. No question about it in the scriptures, and all the Jews know it too. You go to Matthew chapter 3, you find out that they were able to tell the wise men there exactly from this very verse where Christ would be born, the Messiah. You go to John chapter 7, you see the same things. The the, uh, Jews in Jerusalem many years later still knew it. No question that this is Messiah. And what does it say of him? His goings forth have been from eternity, the days of eternity. Our Lord Jesus Christ is this divine being who has existed for all eternity. He's the eternal Son of God. Now, I just want to take up one aspect of this, because when you look at this subject, you will find that those who deny the Trinity, a great many of them are called Unitarians, And according to my understanding of Unitarians, the vast majority of them uh, claim that God is just one God, God the Father. They deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They deny even the personality of the Holy Spirit and claim he's just a force. So I'm not going to take up that further. We've already seen plenty on that. But... There are those who deny any distinction between the persons in the Godhead. And that's really what I want to talk about here in the next few minutes. This is how I came to find that out. One day in Malawi, my neighbor came and he said, I'm aware that the rapture is coming and the Lord Jesus is coming to take true believers home. And he says, I'm terrified to be left behind at the rapture. He said, I would like if you could come to my house and tell me what I can do so that I won't be left behind at the rapture. Well, I'm happy enough to do that. 
So I went over there. I took a brother in the assembly with me, and we went to his house. And when I got there, I found out he had something else in mind altogether. And he, once we sat down, he looked at me, and he said, look at me. He said, here in my house, he said, I am a husband, and I am a father. He said, when I'm at the school, I'm a teacher. When I'm at the church, I'm a pastor, but I'm still one person. He said, and so is God. That's the way God is, he said. He just shows himself in different ways as Father and Son and Holy Spirit, but it's just one God. Was that true? No, that's error. It's a terrible error. And a lot of Christians believe that. They're not true Christians at all. They profess to be Christians. And I just say now, because I don't want to forget to do it, um, <clears throat> beware of this. They don't come as those who uh, are, you know, I'm not too sure about my Christianity. These particular ones call themselves Bible believers. And they tend to come across as being very sure about all of this. And here in the United States... Um, I think they're called Branhamites, but you'll find a great many. They're called Oneness Pentecostals and others beside that as well. And one of the things that they do is they like to teach Jesus only. And it sounds really honoring to the Lord Jesus, but it's not. Because in it, they're saying that he is God and everything is God in him. And they deny anything else. They deny the Trinity. And they take the... um, Baptism, and they won't even baptize in any name but his only. They won't baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as in Matthew chapter 28. So I just say that. Beware of it. Well, we took this man to, to um, Matthew chapter 4. We'll just turn there. Verse Matthew 3, I'm sorry. Verse 16. It says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and, lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. <clears throat> and, lo, a voice from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is one of many verses in the Scriptures that answers the question entirely as to this error. Here is God the Son. He's baptized And what does he see? The Spirit of God descending from heaven. A divine person distinct from himself. And then there's a voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son. Who could that be? But the Father, speaking from an entirely different place, from heaven. Is it not clear? Well, the man my neighbor was following, William Branham, said, Well, God was just acting like in a play. That's blasphemy. These ones who take up the truth of the Trinity that way and deny it, they blaspheme. And in fact, whenever you get into denial of the truth regarding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ or God, by definition, it's blasphemy. We need to be very careful of that. Let's go to Luke chapter 22, see another example, a very solemn one. Luke 22 The Lord Jesus in the garden, verse 41. 
And when he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, he kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Oh, now we see something else about these divine persons. God the Father, God the Son. And what do we have? Individual wills. That defines a person. It's right in the the center of a person is the will. You can't get away from that. This is the only case, as far as I'm aware, in Scripture where the will of the Father and the will of the Son are not the same. Because the Lord Jesus could not contemplate being made sin. And yet, even in that, in his will, he's perfectly submitted to the will of the Father. No division there. This is not some divine comedy, some play of one person trying to make things out for us. These are two eternally distinct persons that we have presented to us here, the Holy Spirit being the third. Now let's uh, look at another verse of could over in uh, John chapter 14. I told my neighbor, I said, if you said to me, I am going to get the pastor and tell the pastor to tell the teacher to come over and tell you more about this, and later on I found out that you were just talking about yourself the whole time, I would think you had deceived me. If you speak that way, I think you're talking about three people. And, in fact, you're speaking about only yourself. Well, that's what we have here. John 14, verse 16. I will pray the Father. He will give you another comforter. Verse 26. But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. That's the truth. This is not some deception by God. It tells us in Titus chapter 1 that God cannot lie. He doesn't deceive. But who does deceive? Oh, we know well who the deceiver is, don't we? It's Satan himself. In John chapter 8, we're told that he is a liar and the father of it. And so we know that he is the deceiver. Well, one more on this, and I want to get on to the last point. Go over to 1 John chapter 4 for a very precious example of the Trinity. 1 John 4 and 14, we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Yes, there is a triune God, and that triune God is for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here we see that the Father sent this Son to be the Savior of the world. And when the Son came here, he could turn around and say to the believers, Oh, the Father himself loveth you. God is for us. This is a precious truth. It's wonderful. We need to take it in and enjoy it in all of its parts as God has revealed it to us in his word. And of course, not go beyond. It's easy to do that too. Well, I want to get on to the last part, and that is the holy humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the scripture presents that as well, but 
many believers uh, question that or flat out deny it. They say that the Lord Jesus certainly did not sin. They agree with that. First Peter 2.22 says he did no sin. And I haven't met yet a believer who questions that. But they say he could have sinned. And because he could have sinned, but he didn't sin, then he has become the great overcomer. Our great example so that we can live lives to the glory of God and overcome as well. And by saying this, they think to do him honor. But of course they don't. Because it's a question of his holy nature, isn't it? And so I just want to look at a few things having to do with our Lord and this question as to whether or not he could have sinned. Now, first of all, if we look at this, we've already seen that the Lord Jesus is God. And the thought of separating his deity from his humanity is not something any one of us should want to do. The thought that somehow in his humanity he could sin, but his deity could not. That is a terrible thought. And so it's first of all, we could take it up strictly on that basis to say, well, if he is God, as it says in James chapter 1, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. It's clear enough. And so we know that the Lord Jesus could not have sinned as God. But they say still, where does that leave him as to his humanity? Personally, I wouldn't even want to go there. But I think it's helpful to see that the scripture carefully guards that as well. Because no doubt, the spirit of God well understood where the minds of men would go. Possibly even believers. I I don't know. I think it's a serious error. But um, just want to look at this and maybe take it up first from Luke chapter, is it one? I think it's Luke one. Yes, Luke chapter 1, the angel speaking to Mary, verse 35, the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. I believe this really answers the question. Another brother has said, and I've really enjoyed it, that there are different forms of humanity mentioned in the scriptures. In the garden originally, there was innocent humanity before the fall. Adam and Eve were there as human beings. They were innocent. After the fall, of course, there was fallen humanity. We all partook of that when we were born. And now, having believed in Jesus Christ, there is such a thing as redeemed humanity. Thank God we've come into the good of that. But the Lord Jesus had something unique, and that was holy humanity. That holy thing which shall be born of thee. The Lord Jesus was born absolutely holy and not just that he was a sinless baby, that wouldn't set it apart from anything. You'd be saying nothing there. It wasn't innocent either. That holy 
thing. This is speaking of his nature. Some question that. They, they could say, well, what about what it says in 1 Peter 1? Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Weren't they holy? Uh, yeah, as to their actions, but that's not what it's talking about with the Lord Jesus here, and I hope we'll see that. Well, they could say, as in Matthew 25 and other places, the Lord refers to the holy angels. Weren't they holy? Didn't some of them fall? So couldn't the Lord Jesus be holy and couldn't he fall? These are the kind of reasonings and thoughts that can go on in this subject. I mention them because we want to see that the word of God is clear about this. that The Lord Jesus was not in the case of any of those other ones mentioned. He was different from all the rest. We could look at 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It's a wonderful statement there, isn't it? He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made or become the righteousness of God in him. The Lord Jesus knew no sin. You really couldn't say that if he had a sinful nature. He did not. He had a holy nature. But it's even stronger in 1 John chapter 3. And I just want to go over and and look at that verse for a moment. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5. Ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. There was no sin in him. His nature was spotless, holy. Sin could never enter there. The Lord Jesus would say in John chapter 14, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. The prince of this world comes to me. He's got something in me. There's plenty there that he can tempt. He could tempt the Lord Jesus all he wanted to, and it didn't matter. And that really brings us to the next point I want to make. What about that? What about the Lord Jesus in temptation? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Or I think the other translation is much stronger on that. Yet sin apart or apart from sin. Why? Because he couldn't be tempted as to sin. Our Lord Jesus was absolutely holy. Nothing in him would respond to sin. And so the temptation could come as we have in Matthew chapter 4. Satan could bring all that temptation to the Lord Jesus. And what did it show? What was it for? People say, well, how was it a real temptation if he couldn't have sinned? Well, the fact of the matter is, the Lord Jesus couldn't sin. And the temptation had one purpose and one purpose only on God's side, and that was to prove that he was this Holy One that was to be born of the Virgin Mary. Right at the beginning of this ministry, no question about it. And Satan tries him. The example is often given about gold, isn't it? And I like that example. It's helpful. You don't test gold with a test to see if the gold will fail. You test it to show that the gold is gold. It can never fail to become gold by the test. And the same with the Lord Jesus. 
He could never fail as to his holy nature by this test that Satan brought. So much so that later on, some of Satan's demons had to come and acknowledge before him, I know who thou art, the Holy One of God. No question about it. He was the Holy One. Was he the Holy One just then? No. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the one before whom the seraphim cried, Holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord of hosts in Isaiah chapter 6. And he is the one who will be holy for all eternity. He was holy at the cross when our sins were put on him. Never more holy than there. So it says in the sin offering, it is a thing most holy. This is the Lord Jesus Christ as to his nature, the Holy One of God. Now one more I want to look in at because this brings in us. And this is First uh, John chapter 3 again. I've really enjoyed this. First John 3 says, Whosoever is born of God, I'm sorry, First John 3 verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Isn't that something? You say, well, who is that? I never met that person yet. Oh, yes, you did. <laughs> the first believer you come across is this person. You say, but don't we sin? Well, yes. Sadly, we do. We still have the flesh. And if we don't keep it in the place of death, then we sin. And we're all too prevalent to that sin, sadly. But what we have when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, we got an entirely new life. And what was that life? Well, here it says, born of God. Could that life sin? It says, he that is born of God can not sin. And what is that life? Colossians 3, Christ, who is our life. Galatians 2.20, the same thought. He is our life. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you got a life from God, you were born from God. I know I'm simplifying that a little bit. But you got his life. And that life is his own life. And what does it say about that life here? Can not sin. The Lord Jesus was as to his nature absolutely holy. He could not sin. Didn't matter what the temptation was. These are foundational truths. These three that I have spoken about today. If in any way they're not real clear with you, I encourage you to go back, take them up before the Lord, come to understand them. It's vital that we be established in the doctrine concerning the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our time is almost gone, but I just want to look at two more passages. The first one is in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. I believe this passage really takes up all three of these points. Verse 8. Unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Isn't that beautiful? Who's speaking? 
God the Father. And who is he speaking to? God the Son. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Interestingly enough, that day in the train station, those Jehovah's Witnesses had no answer for this verse. Perhaps others twisted by Satan would have some thought. I don't know. But it's hard to get around the clarity of this verse. The Son of God is God the Son. No question about it. What does he go on to say here? First of all, we can see that it's the Father speaking to the Son. Is this not the Trinity? Two persons, divine persons of the Trinity? Yes, indeed it is. And he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now, what is this speaking about? Who are his fellows? We don't have time now, but just turn over the next chapter. You see that he took on him flesh and blood so that he could be firstborn among many brethren. Oh, there's that word again, isn't it? Firstborn among many brethren. Those are his fellows. The Lord Jesus has that place of preeminence and God has given it to him. And what does it say in connection with it? Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Is this not the absolute holiness of his person? And try to tell me that this is only his deity and not his humanity. God the Father is speaking about the place given to him, anointing him with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Speaking about that which is in humanity. Beautiful. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. This one Divine being, holy as to his nature, God the Son, perfectly one with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. One last verse in Song of Solomon, chapter 5, and verse 16. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved And this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. My friend, my beloved. That's who we're talking about. This is spoken about others of a coming day, an earthly relationship with the Lord Jesus. How much more is this true for us who've been put into the closest possible relationship with our beloved Let's close in prayer.